have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. As we uh, continue our, our preaching series through the book of Romans, we, uh, we come this morning uh, to Romans 8, verses 22 to 25. We've been uh, kind of taking our time uh, through the book of Romans, especially in, in uh, Romans chapter 8. There's, just, there's so much uh, here in this beautiful chapter. So we looked last week at uh, the, the groaning of creation. And this morning we look at the groaning of believers from Romans 8, 22 to 25. If you would bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word, let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you for sending your Son. We praise you for his sacrifice on the cross. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you paid it all. We praise you for the hope that we have because of what you have done for us, that even in times of suffering and even in times of hardship and trial, we have hope because of what you accomplished at the cross. And I pray this morning, O Lord, that you would work within us a, a deepened understanding and a, a deepened awareness and a deepened encouragement of that hope that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. O Lord, unveil before us the beauty of the glory that is to come, that we might be sustained in our present difficulties and circumstances. And so we offer ourselves to you, and I pray that you do this work in us, O Lord, for our good and, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Romans eight twenty-two to 25. Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You may be seated. In his book about suffering, uh, Tim Keller wrote about a young man in his church who died, and he was a, a husband and a father of, of three kids, and he was doing some, some basic minor repairs in the crawl space, uh, crawl space underneath the, their house, and his wife and kids were just going about their daily routines in the space above, and the wife heard this, this strange noise, and so she went down to the crawl space to check on her husband, and she found lying dead on the ground. He had been electrocuted as he was going about his, his repairs. And Tim Keller, who was their pastor at the time, sat with the family while they waited for the ambulance to arrive. And after sitting in silence for a while, the oldest son, who was nine years old, put into words what everyone was feeling. And he said, he said it isn't right. He said, this, this isn't right. A boy needs his dad. This just isn't 
right. And a cry of that boy captures what Paul is describing in our text this morning. We we saw last week, like I mentioned, that, that, that creation is, is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, groaning and suffering for the day when God's redemption plan will be fully realized. And, and now Paul goes on to say that it's not just creation that is groaning, but that, that we who are believers are, are also groaning with creation. He's talking not about humanity in general. He's talking specifically about the groaning of believers, that we as believers in Christ are groaning with creation. Paul says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves groan. And so we, we join in the groaning of creation. Our, our experience in this fallen world is an experience that's laced with suffering and pain. Like that nine-year-old boy, we are, are groaning about the brokenness that we feel in, in the world around us and, and that we feel with, within us, groaning for things to be put right. And Paul gives us some specific details to our groaning in these verses. He says that we groan as those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. He says in verse 23, not, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown. And, and the first fruits is a term that was used in reference to the, the first yield of a harvest. It signaled both the beginning of the harvest and the guarantee that the full harvest would, would come in due time. And so our possession of the Holy Spirit signals both our, our present salvation and the guarantee of our future inheritance. It places us in that tension, which is, uh, this tension is, is all throughout this text and all throughout Romans 8, that tension between the already and the not yet. The presence of the Spirit in us shows us that our redemption in Christ has already been accomplished and yet it is not yet fully realized. And so we groan because the lives we live are not yet fully redeemed. There is still brokenness. There is still sinfulness. There is still evil. And there's still the consequences of our fallen world. And so we, we groan for the new heavens and the new earth. And we, we groan for the full possession of our inheritance. And when, when all of the suffering will be gone and all of the wrongs will have been put right. And Paul also describes our groaning in this text as an inward groaning. He says that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. And to groan inwardly refers to, it's an expression that re re refers to the deep sighing of the Spirit. Sort of the, those nonverbal expressions of, of anguish as the result of, of deep concern or deep pain or deep stress. We groan as those who long for the pains of this present age to give way to glory. And Paul says, and we're going to linger here a little bit longer. Paul says that we groan for a bodily redemption. He says we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, which he says is the redemption of our bodies. You see, the Bible has a high view of the human body. We were created by God as embodied creatures. We, the, the, the sufferings that we endure include, include bodily suffering. And so the redemption for which we long is a bodily redemption. 
But I think Paul's mention of the, the body here is so significant. It, it counters the, the Greek notion that was so prevalent in Paul's day in the, the atmosphere in which Paul lived and the atmosphere in which he wrote was this Greco-Roman culture and, and the philosophy, the prevailing philosophy of that day and of that age was that the body is nothing more than a prison for the soul. And that salvation involves a liberation of the soul from the body. And so Paul speaks into that to, to, to correct that, that view and to give so what, what is a biblical anthropology is that we were made to be this beautiful union between body and soul together. And the ultimate goal is not a separation of the two in the end, but a lasting union that will be fully redeemed. But until that day when our redemption is fully realized, we endure suffering in the body. We grow weaker with age. Our joints stiffen. Our eyes begin to fail. Our, our hearing begins to fade. We're plagued by illness and disease. Our bodies are subject to frailty and mortality. And the older we get, the more, the more poignant this becomes. I think Paul hinted at the same idea in verse 10 when he said, If Christ is in you, then, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life. So we have the, the promised inheritance of, of abundant and everlasting life, but, but as we wait for that inheritance, Paul says we live in these bodies that are subject to degeneration and, and disease and mortality. We see the same idea in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, one of, one of my favorite passages where Paul describes our bodies as tents. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. And, and just to get our bearings here, when Paul talks about the earthly tent that we live in, he's talking about our, our present bodies. And when he talks about this building from God that, is, that, that we will have, he's talking about not some place up in heaven, he's talking about our resurrection bodies. Right, So if we know that if the earthly tent, our present bodies that we live in, are, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a resurrection body waiting for us, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, he says, we groan, for while we are in this tent, we, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our resurrection bodies, with our heavenly dwellings, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So again, when Paul talks here about this eternal house in heaven and being clothed with our heavenly dwelling, he's talking about our resurrection bodies, the hope of, the, of, a, of, a, of a bodily resurrected existence on the new earth. And the bodies that we live in now are like tents. Temporary, a little flimsy, a little rickety, a little prone to failure, subject to decay. And when our redemption is fully realized, we will be clothed, Paul says, with resurrection bodies. And it will be going like going from a temporary tent to a beautiful and enduring home. I've talked before at times about my experience camping, which is limited. I haven't done a whole lot of camping in my life, but I've done enough to know that a tent is a far cry from a from a home. 
I, uh, and I should clarify, because I often, people are often surprised when they hear that I, you get, you get the sense that I don't like camping. I, I, so let me clarify. <laughs> I'm an outdoors man. I, I, I love outdoors, anything outdoors. I love being outdoors. And so I love everything about camping. I, is all, I'm all about it, I, I just, except for the tent. I, I don't like tents. I've never had good experiences with tents. Every experience I've ever had in a tent has been almost, almost as miserable as it could possibly be. So in my limited experience, tenting has come with these frustrations, you know, waking up in a puddle in the middle of the night because the tent leaks and it's raining. Or uh, slapping mosquitoes all night long because the tent has a gaping hole in the side. And sleepless nights due to the hard ground or root in my back or, uh, you know, uh, scorching heat or, or snoring tent mates. I mean, all the, this, these are the experiences that I've had in tents. And the one time when I thought that I, I finally had maybe the perfect tenting experience, the, at least the, the, the possibility, the potential for a, a perfect tenting experience was on a beautiful sandbar in, on the Wisconsin River, you know, out in the middle of the river all by yourself, and it's just sandy perfect place for a tent and that finally I'm going to have a good tenting experience and I made the unfortunate mistake of sleeping with my feet above my head and I woke up the next morning with this balloon head and my face was so swollen that I could barely see so even that was not a pleasant tenting experience but this is this is what tenting is like it's not that tents are bad they're they're good and they're and they're they serve their purpose really well but they are fleeting and they're temporary and they're, they're prone to weakness and decay. And if you spend enough time in a tent, I, I think I'm not the only one that, that you would begin to see its shortcomings. And you begin to long to be in a place where the walls don't flap in the wind. And that's what Paul says life is like in our present bodies. We, we groan and are burdened, waiting for, for, for what? For the redemption of our bodies. For, for bodies that are not prone to weakness and, and degeneration and, and decay and stiff joints and all these other things, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, waiting for that day when we'll move on from our tents to our true home. And many of us are familiar with this kind of groaning, aren't we? We, we, we know what it is to live in bodies that are subject to weakness and decay. It is a painful burden to do life in these tents of ours when we know that something so much better lies ahead. We groan as we contend with, with minor aches and pains and, and bodily frustrations with, with seasonal allergies and stiff joints and torn muscles and tendonitis and lingering headaches and these kinds of things. And some of us are battling much deeper concerns and deeper issues and deeper forms of suffering in the body. Things like chronic illness and autoimmune disease and cognitive impairment and cancer. A married couple whose names are Mark and, and Martha tell their story, or the, Martha tells their story of groaning. It began with just a small muscle twitch in Mark when he was 48 years old, and just a few weeks later, he was diagnosed with ALS. And they'd been married for 25 years and had four kids at the time, and they had always been a really active family, always loving to do things outside, always hiking, always, you know, and doing physical exercise and different kinds of sports, and that's just the kind of family they were. And when Mark was diagnosed, Martha says she just fell into this, this sort of black hole of despair. 
And she didn't see how she could possibly live through the pain of the coming days. And how could she possibly face this disease that would cripple and kill her husband and, and leave their kids without their father? How could, she, how, could, how could she face that? And she wrote about the day when she went to pick out a place to bury her husband. That was one of the hardest days of her life, she said. How, how hard it was to be in that place of, of choosing a burial site for her husband when many of her friends were choosing, out, choosing places to live in retirement. And like so many others, she was experiencing life in the tent, groaning and burdened and, and longing for redemption. But groaning, of course, is only part of the story in this text. Paul writes about a hope in the midst of the groaning. A hope that really is the only answer to the problem of suffering. And, and the substance of this hope is the glory of redemption. That's, so if you want to think of the, to this text this way, the problem is the suffering that we experience, the groaning in this tent of ours. The answer is the glory that is to come. Paul says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And so the hope that Paul speaks of in this text is the hope of bodily redemption. That's what Paul is talking about, that the hope of, of having our mortal bodies clothed with immortality. The hope of, of tents giving way to mansions. The hope of the new heavens and the new earth and, and living with, with glorified bodies in a glorified creation with our glorified king. That's the hope that Paul is talking about. And like we saw last week is the hope of something that is so, so astoundingly glorious that it will make all of the groanings and all of the sufferings of this present age not even worthy of comparison. If you remember from last week, that image, the language there is the image of a balance. And, and Paul was saying that all the sufferings of this present age don't even register on the in comparison with the glory. Paul said in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not even worth comparing. Don't even register on the scale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in us. Tim Keller said this weight of glory is the deepest consolation to those who suffer. The sufferings of this present age will be, will be nothing, he says, but a, but a brief flicker at the beginning of human history. He said that the resurrection of the body means that we do not merely receive a consolation for the life that we have lost, but a restoration of it. We not only get the bodies and lives that we had, but far better, we get the bodies and lives we wished for, but had never before received. We get a glorious, perfect, unimaginably rich life in a renewed material world. You see, here is the answer to the problem of suffering and evil. It's not only that, that the glory to come will far outweigh the sufferings that we endure, but even more than that, the, the glory to come will be infinitely greater than it could have been if there had been no suffering and evil. And that, that's the beautiful thing about, about the way Scripture talks about suffering and glory, that the suffering makes the glory even more glorious than it would have been without the suffering. If there had been, just think of it this way, just one small example. If there had been no sin and suffering and evil, then, then we would never have known the astonishing extent of God's love and the wonder and the power of the cross. 
Those things came through sin and suffering. C.S. Lewis wrote of a future glory that will so swallow the evil and suffering of the past that in some unimaginable way, even the memories of the evil will, will only add to the glory and enhance our joy. This is the picture that he painted in his book, The Great Divorce. From, from our earthly perspective, he said, we, we think that no future bliss could, could ever make up for the particular experiences of suffering that we endure. But what we fail to realize, he said, is that, that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even those agonies into rays of glory. You see, this is the substance of our hope, that the hope of a bodily redemption. We suffer in the body, our redemption will be a bodily redemption. The hope of a bodied existence that, that carries such a weight of glory that all of the sufferings of this present age are weightless by comparison. This hope is the Bible's deepest and most profound answer to the problem of suffering. I read something recently by Richard Dawkins who was addressing the idea of suffering and, and, and basically just was saying that, well, suffering is, is completely pointless. There, there, you know, it's just, it's just if, if there is no God, there is no creation, there is no design, there is no purpose. And so it's all just meaningless, it's all just random, and we just endure. Well, the Bible has a very different view. This hope is the Bible's deepest and most profound answer to the problem of suffering. The Bible promises suffering for believers. It doesn't say that if you, if you endure, it says you will endure suffering. The, the, the way of Christ is the way of suffering. The, the way of, of Christ is the way of the cross. And so the path of discipleship is the path of suffering. There, there's, no, there's no question about that. But it's a path that ends in a glory that is so weighty and so brilliant that it overwhelms the suffering and even turns the suffering itself into mere brushstrokes on the canvas of glory. That's the Bible's answer. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, John paints a picture of this, this ultimate hope that we have as believers, and it's a hope of an earthly world in which all the suffering is gone. It's, again, a hope of this, this bodily kind of redemption. So John says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with his people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death. Or mourning. Or crying. Or pain. For the old order of things. Has passed away. Now what I find so striking about. Well there's a lot of things that are striking. This is one of my favorite passages. In Revelation 21, but one of the things I find really striking about it is, to, is considering the audience to whom John was writing. John was writing these words to late first century Christians who were absolutely entrenched in suffering. He was writing to a, a, a profoundly suffering audience. The Roman emperor Domitian was, was, was conducting these large-scale persecutions of Christians, and so they were enduring horrific things at the hand of the state. 
They, they were sent into the, into the arenas to be, to be torn apart by, by wild animals for entertainment. While, while people in the, in the stands cheered and, and laughed. They were impaled on stakes. They, they were covered in pitch and burned alive. The, and, and all this, again, specifically targeting Christians. And, and, what, and so this is, what this, this is the kind of, this is what it was like to be a Christian in that time and to be facing these things. And what John gave them in the face of all of that was, was hope. A living hope of a new heavens and a new earth on the horizon, of a, of a glory that is to come that's going so, to be so brilliant, it's going to outweigh and, and overshadow the suffering, any sufferings that you could endure. And, and it worked. Because we know from historical accounts that many of the early Christians endured suffering with, with great, with sort of unimaginable poise and peace. There are story after story of, of, of these Christians singing hymns in the arenas while the beasts were tearing them limb from limb. And the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And so the church grew and thrived through their persecution. Tim Keller said human beings are hope-shaped creatures. That the way we live now is controlled by what we believe about the future. And he told about two men who were captured and thrown into a dungeon. And, and just before they went into prison, the one man learned that his wife and child were both dead. They'd been killed. And, and the other man learned that his wife and child were still alive and, and waiting for him. And, and, and so he tracks the, the, the difference between these two men. And the first one, they were you know, same age, same, same health and all that. The first man just withered away and wasted away and died within two years. And the second man endured and gained strength and walked out a free man 10 years later. And the difference the difference between the two was hope. And that's what the Bible gives us in the face of suffering, the hope of a future glory that, that outweighs and overshadows the suffering. In this hope we were saved, Paul says. Jesus died and was raised to life so that for those who follow him, the, the worst things will be transformed into the best things and, and the greatest things are still to come. It is this hope that enables us to endure suffering. Paul says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they, what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And when Paul says that we wait patiently, he's using, it's a combination of two Greek words, and it's an expression that means to, to wait eagerly is the one word, and then with steadfast endurance is the other uh, perseverance, steadfast endurance, steadfast patience. And so Paul is saying that we persevere through suffering. We maintain a steadfast and patient endurance as we wait with eager expectation for the glory that is to come. In his book, The Weight of Glory, uh, C.S. Lewis describes this glory as a splendor and a beauty for which we long. And, and, and he says, we, we, we long not only to, to see the beauty, 
Not just to see it, but we long to participate in it. We long to, to, to take part in it, for it to, be, be, you know, to, to enter into it in some way. We don't want to just behold it from a distance. We don't want to just see it with our eyes. We want to, we want to experience it and be, become part of it. That's our longing. Long, a longing, as he says uh, in another book, to find the place where all the beauty comes from. And not only to, to find it, but then to enter into it. And so C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, we do not, we do not want merely to, to see beauty. We, we want to be united with the beauty we see, to, to pass into it, to, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At, at present, he says, we're on the outside of the world, on the wrong side of the door. And so we discern the, the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. That's what we want, to be made fresh and pure, to enter into it. We cannot, he says, we cannot mingle with the splendors that we see. But the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with a rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. In our fallen world, laced with suffering and aching with brokenness, we, we long for the redemption of our bodies, but in our longing, we are sustained by, by a living hope of the glory that is to come. Sustained by the promise that one day we shall get in and enter into the glory for which we long. And so for those of you who are enduring suffering right now, and, let, and then before I say more, let me just say, I, I know that some of you are enduring suffering. And I, I have been incredibly inspired and amazed at the grace and the strength and the faith with which you are enduring suffering. I think that this is a season in the life of Covenant Church where I've probably seen more suffering than I have in my, all of my 17 years that I've been here. And I have been absolutely inspired and humbled by the grace and the strength with which many of you are enduring suffering. For those of you who are enduring suffering right now, this, this is, th this, what Paul says here, this is the Bible's deepest and most profound answer to the suffering. If you are in Christ, then the road of suffering that you are walking ends in glory. That there is a future so astoundingly beautiful, so heavy with glory, that it will make even the most unimaginable suffering weightless by comparison. That's the answer. As Paul says, the sufferings of this present age are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to come. And let me just say to you that, that this is not a cop-out answer. I think sometimes we kind of tend to think that it is, that we just, we just kind of escape into it. This isn't a pie-in-the-sky coping mechanism. This isn't just you know, escaping the pain of the present with a fanciful flight to the future. That's not what this is. This is the, the Bible's greatest and, and most profound answer to our suffering as believers. And if we find ourselves wanting more than that, then we, we simply do not understand the weight of this future glory. And so if you are in a place of suffering, then listen to what Paul says in this text, that the suffering you endure is not pointless suffering. It is doing something. The sufferings that you endure are like birth pains. The groaning will give way to glory. The sufferings are part of your redemption story. That the path that you are on is the path ordained by God. And the path that was walked by Christ ahead of you 
and the path that ends in a glory beyond anything that you could ever dare to dream. And it's a path in which the sufferings that you're doing now will be revealed to be, in the end, brushstrokes on this canvas of breathtaking glory. And so in a word, for you who are suffering, there is hope. Hope of better things ahead than any we leave behind. Hope of finding the place where all the beauty comes from. Hope of a bodily redemption and a beautiful existence of glory on a new heavens and a new earth. And so Paul says, wait for it with eager expectation and steadfast endurance. For farther along, you'll see it. Farther along, it'll all be made clear. Farther along, you'll see that any and all the sufferings you endured were not even worthy of comparison to what is now fully realized. The pastor and theologian William Williman once told about a time when a woman in his church had just given birth. And so he went to the hospital to, to visit her and he thought it was just going to be a routine visit. But when he got there, there was a little bit of turmoil because the, she and her husband, after they had given birth, found that the, the baby that, 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 they had given, that she had given birth to was born with uh, significant disabilities. And the baby was also born with, with, a, with a respiratory condition. And this respiratory condition was, was quite minor and easily correctable. But the doctor advised that they, that they not correct the respiratory. It was correctable and minor, but if not corrected, it would be fatal. And, and the doctor advised that they, they not correct the respiratory condition because of all these other disabilities. And he said, just, just let nature take its course. He said, and in a few days, the baby will die naturally and you won't have to deal with any of these problems. In the doctor's mind and in his own words, this is just a natural way. This is a blessing in disguise, a natural way to avoid a road marked with suffering. As it would be so taxing for the family to raise a child with such disabilities and the parents had no question in their minds what, what they would do. And Williman confirmed their decision. They would do whatever it took, whatever it took, whatever, whatever it was necessary to correct that respiratory condition and raise the child. As Williman said, in the dominant cultural narrative, words like suffering are unredeemably negative. You avoid pain at all costs. But in the biblical narrative, he says, uh, suffering is woven into the story of redemption. Suffering is part of the road we walk, the same road that Christ walked ahead of us, the way of the cross. It's not our aim to avoid suffering at all costs. It is our aim to embrace the sufferings that God gives as the birth pains to something truly beautiful. And so we walk the road marked with suffering and we walk it with eager expectation and with steadfast endurance as we, as we wait for this glory that is to come. And we wait for it in hope. Someone has said that in America... Christians pray for the burden of suffering to be lifted from their backs. But in the rest of the world, Christians pray for stronger backs to bear the burdens of the suffering. 
No, we don't get stronger backs by mustering up some strength within ourselves. We get stronger backs by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ and the hope of glory on the far side of suffering. We fix our eyes on this future glory and then we wait for it with with steadfast endurance and living hope. And we say with Paul that while our present bodies are wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. To God be the glory. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response, we praise you for the hope that we have in the midst of suffering, the hope of this future glory that is so astoundingly glorious and so weighty and so heavy that it makes all of our sufferings not even register on the scale. Oh, Lord, I pray that as we come before your throne in silent prayer that you would breathe into us this living hope. Oh, Lord, I pray for those who are suffering, for those who know what it is to be groaning and longing for this bodily redemption. I pray, oh, Lord, that you would speak tenderly to them in this moment of silence that you would encourage them and come alongside of them and strengthen them and equip them. And that you would unveil before them, O oh Lord, this just, even just a, a glimmer, just a, a glimpse of this future glory that lies at the end of this road of suffering they are on. And may they be deeply sustained by it. Oh Lord, hear our silent prayers. Heavenly Father, we praise you for giving us who have faith in you, who have received you in true faith, giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit, who is the first fruits, the guarantee of what is to come, the guarantee of this future glory that is so beautiful that it will make all of our sufferings swallowed. And I pray now, O oh Lord, that you would lead us deeper into that hope and continue to reveal to us and give us more and more glimpses and glimmers of this glory that lies at the end of the road of redemption. That we might be able to say when dark trials come, and my heart is filled with a weight of doubt, we will praise you still. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.